What is your hope right now? I don't know if you woke up this morning and recounted for yourself what it is that you're hoping in. Sometimes, surprisingly, even us who come to church regularly don't take time to take thoughts captive to the obedience to Christ. And I just wonder if you have a clear view of what your hope is this morning. I wonder if you have a clear view of what hope even is. Not just what your hope is, but what hope is. For the Christian, the Bible provides us all with the details of our hope. The Bible tells us both what hope is and what our hope is. And from the Bible, we learn that hope is the confident expectation that God will do all that He has promised. Hope is our soul's anchoring assurance that our God will keep His every word despite how grim and bleak things may seem to us. Hope is us anticipatingly resting in the promised revealing of the full glory of God and in the final victory of all God's people in Christ. Victory over sin, victory over the grave, and victory over all of our enemies. It's knowing that God will complete the good work of conforming His people to the image of His Son and He will bring us to dwell forever in His presence. That is our hope. And we rejoice in it. We rejoice in it even while we are patiently enduring tribulation, we still rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And the basis for the Christian's hope, the basis for our hope family, the reason why we hold firm to our hope and rejoice in it, the reason why at the end of this sermon we're going to stand and sing, regardless of what everybody's going through in the room, we're all going to stand and sing, it's well with my soul. The basis for our hope, the reason we hold firm to our hope and we rejoice in it is because God is almighty. He is almighty. That means that whatever he has determined in his wisdom, he has power to bring about. That's how the Bible begins, right? With the Lord speaking. And what he intended to be is there. What he wills to happen is done. And that is carried out throughout the whole Bible. Uh, What the Lord has spoken will happen. He tells us that this is how His powerful Word works. His Word always works. He says of His Word in Isaiah 55, right, it shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And that's why we hope in what He has promised, regardless of what we experience, Because we know that whatever the Lord is pleased to will, the Lord is able to perform. Amen? Keep that in your mind as we read this next section of Scripture. Acts 12, verse 1 through 25. Please hear the word of the Lord. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. 
And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and the light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, and where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Dear saints, this is the word of the Lord. May the Lord help us in hearing it and in keeping it. Just to briefly reflect and summarize on what's occurring, our text begins with a new enemy to the church being introduced, Herod the king. This is Herod Agrippa I. Uh, we are simply not given an explanation of what provoked Herod to such great persecution. We're simply told the fact of it. We're told that it was during the days of unleavened bread in verse 3, which is the week following Passover, commemorating what God delivered when God delivered his people out of Egypt. It would have been a time when all were gathered together to worship the Lord from surrounding cities and countries. They were all called to gather to keep this feast. So it's highly probable that Herod is seizing the time of heightened visibility to gain favor with the Jews and kill these pesky Christians who were becoming increasingly bothersome to the Jews' ways of life. We know from verse 3 that that was at least in part some of why Herod was violently pursuing some saints. Uh, he saw it pleased the Jews, we're told, which is in direct connection with why he arrested Peter and intended to kill him. So we're, we're told that it's around the same time that Barnabas and Saul are bringing famine relief to the saints in Judea, that in Judea, Herod is laying violent hands on them. So there's this juxtaposition of someone hating the people of God and God caring for them. 
We're told that the church, some of the church was killed, and that this included the apostle James. And this is actually very significant because here James is the first apostle to be martyred. Jesus had prepared them all for this on the eve of his death. He told the apostles, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And as Jesus was taken by the cross, we're told that James was in fact taken by the sword. It's interesting to note that two of the men featured in this section were actually very prominent apostles. We have James and we have Peter, who were not only part of the 12, but they were also two of the three in the inner circle of disciples who seemed to have unique proximity to Jesus. Uh, for example, it was James, John, and Peter who were allowed to be present for the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus goes to pray, just hit something on my little screen. I don't know what I just did. All right, there that is. Praise the Lord. There it is. Uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus goes to pray, we're told that he specifically brings James, John, and Peter along with him to pray. If you know the scene of the transfiguration, it was James, John, and Peter who were invited to go up the mountain with Jesus and see him transfigured before their eyes. This same James, who had a unique sighting of some of the work and power of Jesus, was brought to death by a sword. And that same Peter, who was at the same miraculous events, he was seized and imprisoned in order to meet the same fate. Let's remember that none of God's servants are exceptions from receiving persecution or removed from danger and death. I want to reflect on what we see playing out in this text, and I want to do it by bringing out five encouragements. So as we think through what occurs in this text, as we're thinking through the darkness that's surrounding, I just want to bring out five encouragements from this text. Five things about God that should encourage us from this passage. And encouragement number one is, he listens to prayer. He listens to prayer. I don't know if you've ever been in such great distress or been so overwhelmed or just been so burdened or just been so sad and distraught and you just felt like you had nowhere to go, you had no one to talk to, there was nobody who could help you. That is a quite common occurrence for people, but it's never true of a Christian. We are never without someone to talk to. We are never without someone who can help. We're never without being able to avail ourselves of the listening ear of Almighty God, and the saints are marked by going to Him in their distress especially. So here you've got this intense time of suffering, this intense time of persecution, and the saints run to the Lord in hardship. They lift up their prayers to God. Herod has a plan for Peter, but they know God's plans override Herod's. He plans to kill him, and the saint says, well, let's just pray about that. We're told uh, that earnest prayer in verse 5 was being made for him to God by all the church. I love that when he was set free, he bumps into people who are praying still. Prayer. Uh, Paul wrote to the Roman church, and he called them to rejoice in hope to be patient in tribulation, and to be constant in prayer. And I can't help but to conclude that those three things are interdependently bound up together. How do we rejoice in hope? How do we have patience in tribulation? It has to be through praying. How do we remain constant in prayer? It's because we have hope. How do we not get overwhelmed by tribulation? Because God is with us and He is near. Though Herod would not hear their pleas for justice, our God always does. You can always go to whoever you're bothered by, you can go to their supervisor. You take your prayers directly to God. 
They're supposed to be able to appeal to a king for justice, but this is a wicked king, but they still have a king on the throne, and they went to him. Let us learn to go to God with all our cares. Members, if you feel like the elders aren't really getting what you're trying to get across here, guess what? You can go above our head and talk to God. Married friends, feel like your spouse isn't hearing you? You get to go above their head and talk directly to God. Kids, if you feel like your dad's not really hearing you out or listening well, you can go above his head and talk directly to God. The Lord hears the prayers of his people, and he responds. Ponder anew, the hymn says, what the Almighty can do if with his love he's befriended you. I, I love that it's, they're, they're praying in the midst of great hardship. It, what persecution did not empty their resolve of praying. And we're going to get to that in a little bit of a minute, but they know that God sometimes resolves, he determines, he wills for the saints to suffer hard. That doesn't stop the saints from praying. We're not told what they were praying. We have some clue about it, though. Surely they prayed like the Lord taught them to pray. Father in heaven, holy is your name. May it be hallowed in our midst. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Surely they prayed for James, and they prayed for the saints, and they prayed for Peter to be delivered from evil. Certainly they prayed what they remember Jesus prayed when he was in the garden. They said, oh, Lord, if this cup can pass from him, please let it pass from him. Yet nevertheless, not our will but yours be done. Certainly they prayed for his resoluteness to stand firm under the weight of the trial. Oh, Lord, let, let Peter not back out this time again. Help him to hold the line, fill him with boldness. Help him to, to trust in Christ and to stay trusting in Christ. Give him strength to endure and obey even to death. They were praying. Prayer is not about securing God's yes. It's not what prayer is for. Prayer is not to get God to do what you want. It is to get an answer from God. That's right. But it's not to secure God's yes. For a Christian, his no is as valuable to us as his yes. Because what we're praying for is his will, not ours. So we say, Lord, can I have? And he says, no. We should say, thank you for hearing me, and I trust you. It's a lot harder to pray when you're in the face of a no, isn't it? <laughs> we often don't look at the no and say, thank you, Lord, for that. But it's, it's, it's not about securing a, a yes, it's about securing our rest. This is what Paul wrote to the Philippian church, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Even if your dear brother is in prison to be executed the next morning. He says, but pray. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And you know what happens when we do that? We get something from God. We get peace. We get peace. Praise. Ask. Be thankful. Let, let, let God hear you. Come to him. with. He invites us to come. Come boldly to the throne of grace. We just... Saying about, we get to boldly approach the throne because of Jesus. We get to ask whatever we wish. But what we're looking for is peace. We're looking to experience the reality our Father has heard us. Our Father will help us. And His answer is the answer we want, no matter what the answer is. And that's why Paul goes on to tell them, when you do that, the peace of Christ which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It will occur. If you come to God in a weighty situation, a heavy situation, and you carry your cares to the one who cares for you, you will experience his peace. 
You've experienced this before, haven't you? When you carry your cares to God and he guards you in peace, and what he guards you with is not the yes or no you're looking for. He guards you with his peace, that awareness he's with you, he's leading you, he's helping you, he loves you. The saints were praying here, even in deep unrest, but they are promised to be guarded with surpassing peace. That's what the Lord does. He keeps them in perfect peace who keep their minds stayed on him because they trust in him. I think this is reinforced by what we see Peter doing when he's in jail. I don't know what you would be doing on the eve of your sleep, I mean the eve of your execution, but Peter was knocked out. That brother was sleeping, and he was chained up. I recently did a sleep study, and they had all these wires on me, and it was so uncomfortable I couldn't sleep. He got chains on him, and he's knocked out. It reminds you of the Lord Jesus on that boat that was causing the disciples to worry, but Jesus was asleep. Now, as I read this, I thought, Maybe Peter was supposed to be praying. We've seen this before. <laughs> I was like, you remember in the garden? He was one of the three. Jesus said, watch and pray. And he came back and Peter was sleeping. So Peter might just have been a heavy sleeper. I'm not sure. I was like, should he have been praying? Uh, I mean, you did deny the Lord last time. And you, you, Jesus said, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. Suffering is a great temptation. It tempts people to deny the Lord. It would have been wise for him to pray. But I do think we're, we're seeing something else. I do think it's sandwiched between the saints praying for him, no doubt him praying as well. And I think we're supposed to see in that, yeah, that's about right. They're trying to kill you, and you're catching some good sleep. I think Peter had every res- reason to rest. For what made Christ agonize in Gethsemane was not death. But it was the wrath of God that would be poured on him through that death. Christ was not just burdened by dying. Christ was burdened by the judgment of God. And that's something Peter would never know. That had been taken care of already. Christ took away the wrath and sting from death. So Peter had nothing to agonize over. There's nothing for him to sweat drops of blood about. Jesus has handled the judgment part. His Lord is in control. His goodness and mercy follow him, and he knows he will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Christ died to purchase it, and he has promised to bring it about. And that's what we get to experience when we come to God in prayer. We lift up his promises to him, and we get to experience his peace. And we can lift up whatever we want. We're not promised he will provide whatever we want. But there are a list of things he promises to provide. Jesus says, ask according to my word, and it's yours. Ask the Lord to grow you in holiness. You will get it. Ask the Lord to help you exalt the Lord Jesus Christ this week. He will help you. Ask the Lord to help you put to death sin that's in your flesh. He will help you. Husbands, ask your Lord to help you love your wife. Wife, ask your Lord to help you submit to your husband. Parents, ask your Lord to help you parent your children, to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Children, ask the Lord to help you to obey your parents in the Lord, knowing that it's right. And he will help you. It will be done for you. Say, Lord, show me more of your glory. He will do that. We get to hope in what he's promised, but we also can ask for what's possible. We can ask all kinds of things, specific things. You can ask the Lord to hold the rain back. He's not promised to do it, but sometimes he does. You can ask the Lord to help you because you poorly used your week in study and you have a big exam coming. You say, Lord, I call it the the patriot prayer. Make me swift and accurate, Lord. He's not promised to do that, but sometimes he does. You ask the Lord, oh Lord, any affliction you might have, Lord, take this from me. This is what Jesus did. If it's possible, take it. 
take this from me. You're able to take this from me. And he hasn't promised to do that. But sometimes he does. And we're looking at a scene of it right here. The same saints prayed for James. Oh, Lord, spare him. And he was not spared. But as they prayed for Peter, he was. We pray. We pray not just to secure God's yes, but to secure our rest in him. Encouragement number one, he listens to our prayers. Encouragement number two, he delivers from trouble. He delivers from trouble. Praise God. As we've mentioned, Peter is imprisoned in order to be killed after the Passover celebration. And we're told that Herod has done everything in his power in order to secure the success of his evil plot. And know this, saint, you have your own adversary, we're told the devil, and he likewise uses all his crafty schemes and does whatever he can to devour your soul. He has everything aimed against you. I mean, look how Herod tried to, <laughs> he tried to really make this guy die. It says, when he seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. That is four sets of four soldiers who would rotate throughout the watch to make sure he was always under guard by alert soldiers. This is a maximum security situation. I mean, just look at verse six. Just see how locked down Brother Peter was. It says, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, he was sleeping between some soldiers bound up with chains. And there were sentries before the door who were guarding the prison. So what would happen here, apparently, is that two of the soldiers would be chained to the prisoner even while they slept, while the other two soldiers were before the door on guard. And that's to make sure you wasn't escaping that one. You ain't just about to strong arm. You might strong arm one dude. You're not about to get four, two of which you're chained to. It wouldn't have been possible. It was an impossible situation to get out of. Or was it? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> ain't that impossible for the Lord? No, God sees that, and it looks easy. Like we read, it seemed easy. This deliverance is not because Peter is a master genius about how to get out of prisons. It isn't because of his excellent escape skills. That brother thought he was dreaming when it was happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. He wasn't even aware of what was happening. This is to let us know this had nothing to do with him. This wasn't Peter. Peter didn't get himself out of that trouble. Verse 9 says he didn't even know it was real. What we read through this is that there is a defender of the people of God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And God brings him out. It brought to my mind the scene of Elijah on Mount Carmel where to prove that his God was the real God, the living God, the true God. Elijah and the false prophets are having a battle. And they're calling on their, their God was supposed to answer with fire. And, 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 and they're all up there cutting themselves. They're crying out like, Baal, and nothing's happening. And Elijah's over there just making jokes. Savage. He's throwing holy shade on them. <laughs> oh, maybe he's using the bathroom. Try a little bit louder. Cut a little deep. Like, not having, but to show that God does the impossible so that they wouldn't walk away and say, oh, you just threw a quick little fire on there, and that's why it lit up. He says, douse it in water. My turn, douse it in water. Pour more water on it. Matter of fact, dig a, a moat around it and fill that up with water. And he said, Lord, and that fire came down and licked it up. God shows up in impossible circumstances to show he's the God who does the impossible. He is almighty. He's to be trusted. He's to be loved. He's to be followed. He's to be obeyed. He is almighty. 
Even when conditions seem impossible to us, it is not a strain for the Lord. Here Luke gives us the scenario of Peter being locked up, but highlights that he's super locked up. This wasn't a light lockup, and this is probably because this happened to Peter before. You remember earlier uh, in Acts, uh, <laughs> whenever the apostles get locked up, it's chapter 5. It says they arrest the apostles, they put them in the public prison, but during the night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, y'all go on, keep preaching. So maybe he heard, okay, this guy knows how to get out of jail. Let's make sure this doesn't happen on our watch. But the Lord is at hand. Even the many details about how specific the angel, how specifically the angel brought Peter out, it's to let us know that this, this, this was an easy thing for God, but it was a complex situation. He had to wake him up, drop the chains. They had to pass through the guards. They had to pass through the first two centuries, make it through the iron gate, walk down the block, and it's to your left, and he left. Right? It wasn't just like he could jump the fence and be free. No, he, had, he was chained with two chains, guarded by rotating squads of 16 soldiers, had to get through an iron gate and make it away from, from before people find out. So a rescue that Herod couldn't conceive of, God quite easily accomplished. While the saints were, were praying, and they weren't even ready for God to answer their prayers. And this is often like us. You ask God for something, he does it, and you're just shocked that he did it. Well, this is what's happening here. They're praying, and then P Peter shows up. And we're told that, man, this really isn't this isn't owed to the power of their prayers, and it isn't owed to the wisdom of Peter. It's not the wisdom of Peter, he was asleep, he didn't know what was happening. It's not the power of the prayers, they didn't really know that it was going to happen. So when Peter shows up, it's not like, yo, we've been praying and he's here, we, I told you he would do it. That's not what happens. It's kind of funny. Peter comes, and, you know, he's trying to be quiet, you know, he's running from jail, and Rhoda shows up to the door, he's like, yo, it's Peter, and she goes, and runs. She leaves. He's still out front of the door. And I just love the, his, the history in this. Again, Luke is, is, is describing an event as it actually happened. It's, he, he's like, so that, you know, it, it keeps both the, 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 the gruesome stuff and the comedic stuff in here. You could totally see this happening. Somebody just so excited, like, oh, snap, let me go tell everybody. Yo, come let me in. Um, like, they're so in disbelief, they're ready to say it was, it was sooner Peter's angel, that an angel showed up who was watching over Peter who was impersonating him. They were quicker to believe that than that it was actually the apostle Peter. So this is not owed to their prayer. It's not because of the power of their prayers. It's not because of uh, Peter's specialness. It, it, is, it is drawing attention that this is the Lord's doing. Peter says it twice. Verse 11, I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me. He says it again in verse 17. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Let us remember that God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. And we know, too, by our own experience. We have a better experience than this. I love the, the prison, the prisoner being set free motif that's in the Bible and how that applies to us in Christ. Don't read what happened to Peter and walk away just amazed like, man, I wish I could see that. When you're a Christian and you know you've received much more. Talk about greater deliverances. Yeah, while Peter's story is amazing, we have a, a more amazing story of God's deliverance and bringing us not from the prison of Herod, but bringing us from the prison of our sin to freedom in Christ. In fact, every other deliverance in the Bible is just a shadow and a pointer to the great deliverance that King Jesus has accomplished by his work on the cross and his rising from the dead. The Exodus account of when the Lord hears his people and comes down to deliver them. Wonderful deliverance, but merely a shadow. Peter being set free from prison. Wonderful deliverance, but merely a pointer. 
We who believe in the Lord Jesus and have been saved from our sins and have received and do experience that great deliverance that he has worked on our behalf, we have escaped from the condemnation that is owed to us. We have escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sin. I mean, that's what the gospel actually is. It's a message about God's deliverance. Paul would later say this to the church in Rome, right? This is what the gospel is. It's the power of God. God to deliver. It's his power to save. Saints, the gospel is a message. It is the message that God truly delivers from trouble, that he miraculously delivers from trouble. Nothing normal, nothing regular about it. God became man to save us and deliver us from our sin and from our captor, the devil. And he rose from the dead to set us all free. How is it? When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when the Bible says you were dead to God, how is it that men and women who were formerly dead to God are gathered here this morning alive to Christ and now worshiping God, talking about only a holy God could do it? How does that happen? Well, it's because God delivers from trouble. I love the way the psalmist says it in Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, who he has redeemed from trouble. But let us testify ongoingly that we are redeemed from trouble. Let us say so, and saints, let us pray so. It's encouragement number two. The Lord delivers from trouble. Encouragement number three. God is sovereign over death. We thought about this a little bit a couple weeks ago. We'll think about it a little more today. There's actually a lot of death in this text. Wonder if you noticed it. In this passage, we have God's people violently pursued to death in verse 1 and 2. We have Peter being rescued from death. We have the centuries being punished to death in verse 19. We have an angel supernaturally inflicting Herod's death in verse 23. And what's clear throughout this book and from this chapter specifically is that God is in full control. God is in full control. He is sovereign over death. Death, saints, is the Lord's domain. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, the Lord says, See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Jesus taught this reality to his disciples and called them to be fearless because of it. Remember, he told them that not even a sparrow falls to the ground dead apart from our Father. And he tells us that the hairs of our head are all numbered right after that. Meaning, our living and our dying are being overseen and orchestrated by an all-powerful God who has pledged eternal good to us who believe and who watches over each of us with hair-counting detail and attention. That means people don't accidentally ever die. Psalm 139.16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. God has brought us each into life by his appointing, and he has ordained and appointed a death for us all as well. Hebrews 9.27 says so. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. 
It is appointed by God that this life that we are all living will end by his sovereign determination, and at that point, our forever will begin. So Stephen didn't just accidentally die. No, we're to know God ordained it. The saints mentioned in verse 1 who were violently killed, they didn't die accidentally. No, God ordained it. It was their appointed time to go. Yes, it involves the efforts and the thoughts of evil people who will give an account to the Lord for their sin, and we will actually get to that a little later. But God sinlessly uses the sins of sinners to bring about his will. That is how holy and powerful and good he is, that he even makes great wickedness to help produce great good. Now, this is what Peter had preached years earlier in the first sermon after Pentecost. You remember in Acts chapter 2, 23, his proclamation was that this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You did it, he ordained it, he appointed it, he planned it. Yes, lawless men did it, but God ultimately ordained it. And we don't get to know how this all fully works. We don't fully understand the intricacies of the mystery of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. No, remember that is raising our eyes too high. Those things are too great and too marvelous for us. Luke isn't mentioning these deaths, anticipating that someone reading it will demand an explanation, but rather he is writing this to strengthen their reader's certainty and confidence in the power of God. This is why the saints can have hope. Even when facing horrible circumstances or after witnessing saddening death, the good Lord is still over it all. That's what's kept the saints for ages. We read in Acts 12, verse 2, about what occurred to James. That Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And there was not a moment in reading that sentence that our confidence empties concerning the goodness of God. You don't read that Herod killed James and think, oh, what kind of God is that? It doesn't even happen. It doesn't even cross your mind because it's so clear that God is over it. We read what happened to James. There's not a moment where our confidence empties concerning his goodness or concerning his power to work. We know that that sentence is only possible by God's permission. That act was only accomplished by God's ordaining. Do you remember the instance in the Gospels of a mother coming kneeling before Jesus, asking of him something, asking something for her two sons, asking that one would sit at his right hand and that one would sit on his left in his kingdom? You remember who those two sons were? That was James here and John. And do you remember what Jesus told them? In addition to telling them that's not mine to determine, that's to the Father, he asked them a question. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? This is a reference to his suffering. They want to share in his throne, but don't know the cost of the cross. If we're to reign with him, we must suffer with him. If we're to live with him, we must die with him. And so Jesus asked them, are you, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said, we are able. And though James didn't know what it meant, Jesus did. And looking at James and John, he told them, you will drink my cup. Years before James is put to death with the sword, Jesus told him, you will drink my cup. We read Acts 12 too and see God's sovereign purposes still working. That it was time for James to sip that bitter cup of suffering and enter into glory. We read Acts 12 too and see the word of Christ fulfilled 
The apostle James drinking from Christ's cup. We watch him sharing Christ's suffering, becoming like Christ in his death, and with a fixed eye towards attaining the resurrection from the dead. I think it's important to look at this and just note that God hasn't determined the same momentary end for every believer. Not the, the same things don't happen to every saint. James was martyred. We're told in tradition Peter was martyred. But we're told through tradition that John actually lived to a very old age. Not all die the same way and at the same times. Not all are delivered from painful death while some others are. Some are told no in answer to prayers for healing, like the Apostle Paul. And others are healed immediately, like the man at the gate, beautiful. Sometimes one's life was taken by the sword, while another's life is delivered from prison and from death. And the question is, how do we explain that? It's not because one's more special. It's not because one prayed more. It's not because one was more holy. It's not because one thought more highly of one than the other. No, it's because God is sovereign over death. One of the most helpful things I heard Pastor John Piper say, and this was over a decade ago, was that God both delivers from death and delivers by death. He both delivers from death and he delivers by death. Up until that point, I hadn't treated death itself as a great form of the Lord's deliverance of his people. But it really is. It must be. In Christ, death is a form of deliverance. It has to be. Because it's only through death that we are made ready to experience the full abiding goodness of eternal life. If death wasn't a form of deliverance, how else could Paul say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. Paul says, my desire though is to depart and be with Christ. He says, for that is far better. Oh, there is a great cause for hope when we consider that our good God is sovereign over death. Our Father of mercies is the one shaping and shepherding us through every deadly misery, and he has promised everyone who trusts in Jesus participation in the resurrection of life. Our brother Jason was praying for the saints, and he said, satisfy them with long life from Psalm 91. What does that mean? Does that mean, Lord, give them a long go here? It can't mean that. The most righteous person died around 33. It must mean that there's a way for life to keep going through death. And beloved, there is a way for life to keep going through death. That's why they were preachers of the resurrection witnesses to the resurrection, heralds of the resurrection. This is why Paul would write, without the resurrection, we have no hope. We are only satisfied with long life if it's eternal life without sin and without distance from our God. And that's exactly what he has promised to his people. Saints, the resurrection is the fullest and final deliverance to be worked for every saint, and only in view of the resurrection do we appreciate the scope of Psalm 34, 19, which says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He doesn't deliver the righteous out of some of them. He delivers his people out of all their afflictions, all of them. but you gotta wait for most of them. That doesn't happen until the resurrection. And that's why at the end of Revelation describes glory as being free from everything that troubles the saints, because they've been delivered and brought safely home. He delivers all, he delivers out of them all horrible hurts, evil executions, the most intense and painful acts of betrayal imaginable. The Lord will deliver his people from them all. 
And that only truly happens in the resurrection where the old is forever forgotten and passes away and everything new is applied and apparent. That's why Peter would later write to the saints, oh, set your hope fully on the salvation that's to come. What do we think of these saints who belong to the church and of James who died? Why do we read and feel this sense of honor and encouragement and emboldening? Saints, believers who have died have not entered into anything deserving of pity. As we consider James' death, and every other precious saint who has fallen asleep, we should actually have a kind of godly jealousy, hearts of thanks to God. Remember, Paul says, it's far better. For those who are away from the body, dear church, are at home with the Lord. Their labors have stopped. Their rest has arrived. They've been delivered from every trial and all afflictions. They're safe from every enemy. Their every wound has been healed. Their sicknesses are no more. Their sin forever forgotten, covered, and forgiven. Their sorrow is replaced with eternal consolation, and they are with the one their, their soul loves most. And as they await the undying glorified body promised to all of the saints, May we look on the death of these saints and the death of any saints and remember what a sweet thing it is for God to be sovereign over death. Encouragement number four is that God judges his enemies. God judges his enemies. We see from verse 18 through 19 that like Pharaoh's heart was hardened after the display of God's power in the plagues, here Herod's heart is hardened as well in response to Peter's miraculous escape. Rather than him find out like, yeah, what happened? I'm dealing with someone greater than me. Instead, he hardens his heart and further re resists the Lord himself. So rather than repent towards God, Herod further resists him. He doesn't acknowledge God as the deliverer, but he blames the soldiers for messing up the plan. Here, Herod is angry at people, and he is completely unaware that God is angry with him. If you look at verse 20 through verse 23, I'm going to go ahead and read it again just to refresh you. It says, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and when they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, excellent kid name, by the way, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace. So we're getting shown from every way that this is not a merciful man. This is not a kind man. This is not a good man. This is a, a vile man. There, there's people who depend on him for food. They're asking for peace, but he's mad. And it says, verse 21, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. He got all kingly, started talking all kingly, waving his hands and using his words like he thinks kings do. And the people are shouting, voice of God and not of a man. And that's when the king of heaven gets involved in the moment. Immediately, we're told, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Notice how quickly who seems mighty and powerful in one moment is brought to be nothing and no one in an instant. You know when people talk about hell sometimes and their pride, they act like it's going to be this party. Like, I'll see you in hell. Like it's going to be some big fight that they're just going it's, to, it's for people who just like fighting forever. That's not what it is. Hell is the most humbling and horrible place imaginable. 
and it's where God's enemies will be forever, and it's where they will experience the tremendous foolishness of their pride and sin. Just as God is able to bring this man to his death in a moment, we don't have to strain to see how all will be brought to bow before him on that last day. No one really gets to the end of this chapter after we've read how bad Herod was and what he did, and nobody feels bad for Herod. When you read that, you kind of feel this sense of, that's about right. That dude was tripping. We don't read that and be like, ah, man, that, I felt a little strong. No, we read it, we're like, okay. There's an obvious justice in it all. His evil folly is made plain in the punishment totally expected, and it's completely understood. We read plainly of his crimes, and we don't wince at the consequences. It's right. Well, that's a foreshadow of the day of judgment. When God repays every man according to what each has done, when God opens up his books and enters into judgment with his enemies, there will be an obvious and glorious sense of justice for the day of judgment will be the most just day imaginable. People who don't know the Lord, who love fighting for justice, don't know just how much they're asking for. The Lord has a kind of justice that is unfathomable to us in our fallen senses. We don't have an adequate concept of what it means to repay someone for their sins. But God does, and God does. He says it is appointed for man to die once and after that, judgment. And as God's enemies are ushered into hell to eternally experience the consequence of their sin, it will be to the praise of God's glory and sin will be exposed for the horrid evil it truly is. All of God's enemies' cases will read as plainly as Herod's before the great congregation and before the heavenly host. It is plain to all that sin deserves death. And I think when you kind of contrast what happens to a believer where they die and even when they die, yet shall they live. Here, for the unbeliever, when they die, they die more. It's appointed for man to die once and then go into judgment. And that second death is a tremendous death. It will not be quick, but it will be lasting. This text gives the root cause of Herod's sin. It's a refusal to glorify God. And this is really the heart of all sin, a refusal to glorify God. It's the foul fountain from where all sin springs forth. We know this from Romans chapter 1, verse 18. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And that ungodliness is explained in verse 21, which says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were dark and they refused to glorify the Lord. Oh, God will repay all of his enemies. Just like his people cling to his promises that he will not drop any of us. He will bring us all safely home. We will get to enter into the fullness of the goodness that he's promised. It is the opposite for the unbeliever. They must anticipate God keeping his every word to repay you according to your sin. One of the most terrifying things someone can actually say is only God can judge me. That is your problem. That he's the one going to judge you. That is all of our problems. That this God who is almighty uses his all-powerful arm to punish his enemies for their sin. To bring about true, cosmic, lasting justice. In the Bible, we're the bad guys. We like to read and we're always Peter. We're always Paul. We're always David. We're Abel. We're Jesus. But I was like, nah, you're on the other team. 
We are in our sins, trespasses, dead there, hostile to God, enemies of God. We deserve to be treated like Herod. God will work out his divine justice with perfect execution. He promises it. And remember, he always keeps his word. Regardless how things look, regardless you think, man, yeah, the stuff I did, nobody knows. He knows, and he's the one who's promised to punish it. Let us remember, the Lord has the final word. Just because you're permitted to do something doesn't mean God doesn't intend to hold you accountable. Cain was permitted to harm his brother, but God repaid him for his sins. Pharaoh was permitted to harm Israel, but God repaid him for his sins. Jezebel was permitted to harm God's people, but God repaid her for her sins. King Herod was permitted to harm God's people, but God repays him for his sins. The devil is permitted to harm God's people. He still does harm God's people, and until the Lord returns, he will harm God's people, but God will repay him for his sins. This is a comfort to God's people that helps us to know that whatever injustice we see now, it will get repaid later. There is never a moment of injustice that will not be forever paid for. Not a single instance. This is why Paul wrote to the church, says, Beloved, never avenge yourself. We have an avenger. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay says the Lord. And this ought to be a terror to God's enemies. Anyone who is an enemy of God today, anyone who hasn't turned from their sins and believed in the Lord Jesus, this is all a blaring warning to you. We're supposed to see what happened to Herod. It's going to be what happens to you. It's the same reason, the same sin. We'll get the same response. Not that God is going to strike you dead and worms are going to eat your body right in a moment when you sin. No, the fact you're still alive is a mercy to you already. The fact is that there is a day of judgment coming where God will bring the full weight of our sins against him on ourself, and he will repay us with the judgment that's owed. Listen, if you're here today, and that is you, if you're here and you are not a Christian, one of the reasons God has you here today so that you would know what is to come, that you would have a right expectation of what's ahead, that he is not a God who overlooks sin, who thinks little of sin, but he is a God who punishes sin. The reason he has you here today, though, is so that you won't get punished for it. Because while he is good and he is just and he is righteous, he is filled with mercy and grace and he delights to show mercy to his enemies. He loves to save Herod's. We know that because who's mentioned at the end of the chapter. Here comes brother Saul who did the same sins Herod did. But he was saved by the same grace that saves us all. The judgment of God is certain, it's coming, but there is deliverance from the wrath of God. Who does God save us from? Himself. He saves us from his judgment, he saves us from his wrath, and he does that by hiding us in his son, who was treated according to our sins, was punished for our wrongdoing, and who conquered the death we should taste forever. Oh, please do not pull a Herod and keep going about your business if that's you. We, we implore you, we ask you, we beg you, we entreat you. Consider him. Consider the certainty of that day and consider the fact he offers terms of peace right now. That's what he sent his people to do. The very ones Herod is killing is the very ones who have the deliverance message. What an irony it truly is. And that brings us to our final and, and last point. He builds his church. We've said this throughout, but it's just clear in the book of Acts. If you want to know what the books of Acts is about, it's that the gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus will build his church. Page after page, the gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus will build his church. 
There's Herods and there's stonings of Stephen's. There's um, guards and there's Roman emperors, but God builds his church, right? The word of God, we're told in verse 24, is increasing and multiplying. All this craziness happening, all this darkness going on, and yet the word is increasing and multiplying. And Barnabas and Saul come back from Jerusalem. Their team is now a little bigger. They got John Mark, and they're ready to get busy in serving Jesus. I mean, look what's come from it all. God is sending forth his word. His word is still bearing fruit, and he's raising up and sending forth laborers. No matter how much the opposite, it must be frustrating to be the devil for real. Like nothing works. He raised up a bunch of people to kill the Son of God and actually sealed his own fate, actually disarmed himself, actually crushed his own head, Fail. He comes against the church, and he's trying to kill them. He's trying to scare them, and it has the opposite effect. They're multiplying. They're getting more bold. They're testifying more, and even some of his own minions are joining their team. Oh, what a beautiful thing. Well, the power of God going forward and his saving work increasing. Listen, the word of the Lord goes forward through supplication, through suffering, through supernatural activity, through life, and through death. The work is not bound up with any fallen person, no matter how special, gifted, or prominent they may seem. No, the work is not dependent on any person that's fallen. It's bound up with the risen Christ. And as he lives, his work lives. As he's well, the work is well. And his throne is in heaven, and he's seated peacefully there. This is why when Peter was trying to write to the church and they were experiencing all kinds of persecution and affliction, he just reminded them, the Lord is in control. That's how Peter ended his letter. To him belongs the dominion. Regardless of what we're experiencing, whatever we see, we remember God's purposes succeed because to him belongs the dominion, the power. He's able to keep producing fruit. He's able to keep saving people. He's able to keep delivering. He's able even through death to bring you back to life. He's able to keep all of his promises. He's a God who does. He's a God who will. And that's why he said, to him belongs the dominion. This is why the saints were singing that even in glory. And this is what keeps the saints powering forward. Not look to us, not to our name, not to our strength. It is just a powerful testimony that God is with us. God is working in our midst, and he is able to do all he wills. Oh, dear Lord, we do pray that you would help us to be filled with faith, to believe in the Lord Jesus. We do pray, Lord, that you would help us to not be discouraged in darkness, that we wouldn't retreat at opposition. Pray that you would fill us with your spirit, fill us with boldness, fill us with joy and peace in believing your word. And we cannot wait till you send your son. Help us to set our hope fully on him. Send him soon, we pray. Amen.